Good morning, guys. Great to see you. Now we know who the real men are. I want that on the recording for the guys who stayed home. The room is packed. You're the only one who probably didn't make it. Now, I hope it wasn't bad for you out there. I remember in Colorado when I do this, I mean, we'd get two feet of snow, and we'd have more people showing up on that day just to prove that they could make it there than they would on an average day. So I appreciate you guys battling the cold and the snow out there. Uh, you know, it's hard for me to believe that we are in the 16th week of the great adventure of manhood. And my prayer throughout this whole time has been that you would come to a greater understanding of your unique design. Uh, or, as Bagger Vance has put it, your authentic swing. And, and you need to know that that understanding that authentic swing is going to be the key to being able to embrace the adventure that God has for you, the one that will sustain you throughout your entire life so that when you get to the end of life and you look back at the beginning, you're able to say to yourself, now that was a life worth living. That's my heart for you as you make your way through life. Now, last week we began talking about understanding that unique design, your unique wiring, that authentic swing, and uh, I, I began two weeks ago getting you acquainted with your personality structure. Uh, and I showed you this. This, of course, was my personality structure, and I talked a little bit about it last week. And in introducing that personality structure, I said there were five truths that you need to understand about your personality structure, your condominium the home, which is the real you. And if you'll give me just a few minutes, I would like to review that and refresh your memory of those five truths. You can follow along in your notes. The first is your design is not limited to one personality part, but rather to a unique combination of all six. God has said that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are actually a combination of all six personality parts. Uh, and you discovered that God has taken both you and me and made us uh, uniquely different from each other. He has creatively wired us as one of a kind. We're unique. Secondly, your percent, percentage bars represent the amounts of energy God has given to each one of your personality uh, parts. The higher the percentage, uh, the more energy you'll have as you tap into the strengths of that personality part. The lower the percentage, the less energy you'll have. And you need to remember that the servants by design inventory we've given you uh, really is a descriptive instrument to describe who you are and why you do what you do, which relates a lot to those percentage bars and the energy you have for the different parts. Thirdly, your greatest strengths are found in the personality parts closest to your foundation. Whatever your base personality is, the one closest to the bottom, that's the one you'll find yourself more consistently reflecting the viewpoints, the motivations, and the strengths we've been talking about. They are that which is part of your unique design. And typically, the one at the base doesn't change at all over time. It's your base now. It'll be your base 
six years from now or 60 years from now. Now, you can draw strength from the other parts, uh, but the things in your base are the things that you will easily keep at your fingertips. If the whole house collapses, it collapses down to the base. The base is what's left. In other words, under pressure, as you pull away from the other personality parts, you tend to, to default to relying on your base. That's who you are primarily, but you are a combination of all six. Then fourth, your personality parts nearest the attic are the one that you rely on the least. I mean, no one lives in the attic, but you do go there. It takes energy to go to the attic. I mean, you've got to climb all those steps to get there, and it'll, it'll take energy to engage with the personality parts in the attic or uh, the upper levels of your condominium, that home that is uniquely you. And then finally, understanding your unique personality structure will help you discover your unique design from God. Now, that's what the great adventure is all about. And last week, we began discussing uh, the viewpoints, the strengths, and the motivations of two of the six personality parts. Do you remember the first two? The first one we looked at last week, in the way of a little review, is the harmonizer. Remember the harmonizer. They have the unique ability to share their feelings. They tend to be emotional. Uh, and uh, they tend to nurture and encourage others. They're very relational. Now, do you remember the strengths of the harmonizer? Can anyone come up with any of them? One strength. Okay, they can read others. Remember, they're compassionate. They tend to be warm. And they tend to be sensitive. Now, they view life from a feels-first lens. That's how they view life. And their currency, you might want to write this down, their currency is compassion. Now, when I say currency, I'm talking about the way they engage their environment, the culture in which they live. And they do it with compassion. They're motivated by needing recognition of person, meaning they need recognition for who they are, not just what they do. And to a harmonizer, what people think of them is very important to them. That kind of gives you an overview of the harmonizer to refresh your memory. The second one we looked at last week were the achievers. You remember the achievers. Most of you had achievers somewhere close to your base. Uh, achievers have the unique ability to think logically. They tend to be task-oriented. Uh, they are organized, responsible. They're logical. The viewpoint by which they view the world is a thinking-first lens. Harmonizers, a feels-first lens. Achievers, a thinking-first lens. And their currency, in other words, the way they engage their world, their currency is logic. You might want to include that in the, in the mix there. Uh, they want and need recognition for ideas and accomplishments. Being recognized for those things is very important to them, and it motivates them. So those are just a brief overview of the harmonizer and the achiever. So we want to jump ahead and look at the other four personality parts. I want you to understand the strengths, the viewpoints, and the motivations of the next four, 
So I want you to buckle your seatbelts because we've got a lot to cover during this session. We're going to cover four personality parts. And the first one I want to talk about is persister. How many came out as persister in your base? Okay, many of you did. Now, persisters are guided by underlining convictions that tend to be based upon principles they hold to, standards they adhere to, beliefs that they have. But, but they're underlining convictions. And so they adhere to those things. And from those convictions, they determine what's right and wrong. And they adhere to what's right primarily. And, and that's a great value that they have. Uh, they would rather adhere to what's right and go through hardship than compromise the values they hold to. In other words, values are very important to them. In fact, uh, they will persist through hardship in order to hold on to those values. That's where persister comes from. The strength of a persister are they're dedicated, they're observant, and they're conscientious. Dedicated, observant, conscientious. Most people know where a persister stands on important issues. Their compass always points toward ideals like loyalty, purity, faithfulness, truth, honesty. Uh, they are discerning, noticing everything, and measuring everything against their own personal standard of wrong or right. Now, it may not be your standard. It's their personal standard of what's wrong or right or the way things should be. And they tend to view the world kind of black and white. There's not a lot of gray with the persister. Persisters tend to be dedicated. They love having a, a cause worth living for. I mean, that cause could be serving the oppressed. It could be just providing for their family a, a warm, stable, safe home environment. Uh, but whatever values they hold to, they have an unwavering commitment to those values. And they have a willingness to sacrifice for those values, which tends to bring stability to whatever environment they are in because of their willingness to do whatever it takes to adhere to the values that are internal within them. Their viewpoint of perceiving the world is an evaluating first lens. Remember, the harmonizer is a feels first, achiever is a thinks first. This is an evaluating first lens. And as a result, they tend to live true to their beliefs. The, the words you hear them use are words like, my values are important to me. I know what's right and what's wrong, and they adhere to that throughout their entire life, their standard of right and wrong, whether you agree with it or not. Um, they tend to be quick to make value judgments about people and things. Many times you hear persistent say, say something like, well, he should have or she ought to. And if you hear should and ought, you, that's persister language. That's an indication that that person has persister somewhere close to their foundation. Maybe it is their foundation. So it follows logically that they're motivated by the need for recognition of their convictions and their beliefs. Persisters love hearing statements like, I admire the way you took a stand for that. Uh, you saying, you know, your opinion matters to me. If that's a persister, they love hearing that. Or um, I, I really like 
the integrity by which you carry out your job. That, that's motivating to a persisters. Persisters also have a strong need to do something of lasting value. Success is not enough motivation for a persister. Now, that may be for an achiever, but a persister is not motivated just by success. They want to know what they're doing is making a difference in the world. And uh, where an achiever, productivity is based upon the accomplishment of a task. For a persister, productivity is an adherence to the mission that they're dedicated to. It could be the mission of the company they're part of where achiever wants to get the task accomplished. You achievers, you just like checking it off your list. Well, a persister wants to know that their task relates to the mission that they're wanting to accomplish. And that's where they receive their motivation and their productivity, their sense of I'm getting something accomplished here. In short, their currency is values. That's how they engage the world around them with their values. And that's why the scale is a symbol of the persister. Now, in the U.S. population, uh, 10% are persisters. Now, you'll notice that here there are more than 10% of you raised your hand. You know what the reason for that is? Churches attract persisters. They have strong values, strong morals. It's just natural. Just like many of you were achievers, this area here, the success of people who live in this area, uh, that success was um, provided because they are more achiever-oriented. That's why we have more achievers in this room, more than likely. But only 10% of the population are persisters. 25% are female, 75% are male. A great example, a biblical example of a persister is the Apostle Paul. In fact, in the New Testament book of Philippians, we find him evaluating his whole course of life. I want you to just follow along as I read. Notice what he says. He says, If anyone else thinks that he might may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Now, you got to remember, he's a persister, but this is before he becomes a Christ follower. I mean, he'll be a persister after he's a Christ follower and before. But this is before he becomes a Christ follower. Uh, concerning righteousness, which is of the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. Now listen to what he says next. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God by faith. Notice what Paul says. He says, I count all things lost for the excellence of knowing. In other words, I count everything lost compared to the excellence of knowing Jesus Christ. Now, that's a strong belief statement. That reflects values, beliefs, opinions, and those things are extremely important to a persister. Some of your famous persisters throughout history uh, Martin Luther was a persister. 
during the Reformation, he was willing to die for what he believed to be true. Martin Luther King did die for what he believed to be true. He's a persister. Other persisters are Eleanor Roosevelt, Madame Curie. Uh, Sherlock Holmes is a persister. Superman was a persister. But Clark Kent was a dreamer. We'll talk about dreamer in a minute. Florence Nightingale was a persister. Archie Bunker was a persister. You may not agree with his standard, but he had standards, values he he decided to live by. He's a persister. Probably the best example of a persister uh, I found is found in Eric Little. Do you remember him? He was the Olympic runner in the movie Chariots of Fire. Uh, He's being pressured by the British Olympic Committee, to compete on the Sabbath. I want you to follow what happens here. Eric Little. Delighted, Little. Delighted. I saw you play for Scotland. Pressed me no end. Ran in a couple of tries from your own half, I remember. Leave it is, yes. Nice to have you on the same side at last. Excellent effort of Lindsay's, don't you think? He did well, sir. He did indeed. An example to us all. Eric, uh, I introduce His Grace, the Duke of Sutherland, President of our Olympic Association, and our Chairman, Lord Cadogan. Have a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Cigar? Oh, no, of course you don't. Nor drink. Such is the resolution of the young man you have before you, gentlemen. Lord Birkenhead has advised us as to your attitude towards your participation in the 100 meters heats, little, or would your non-participation be more accurate? It would, sir, yes. We were also consulted as to the correct manner in which to approach the French. Something we just can't allow to happen. Going cap in hand to the frogs of all people? Simply out of the question. Simple matter of national dignity, little. Being a patriot, I'm sure you understand. Well, I must say, sir, I felt it was an impractical suggestion from the start. Well, why did you damn well say so, man? As an athlete, you value economy of effort. I wanted to run. I was desperate enough to try anything. Well, all that being understood, we decided to invite you in for a little chat to see if there's any way that we can help resolve the situation. There's only one way to resolve the situation. That's for this man to change his mind and run. Don't state the obvious, Cadogan. We have to explore ways in which we can help this young man to reach that decision. I'm afraid there are no ways, sir. I won't run on the Sabbath, and that's final. I intended to confirm this with Lord Birkenhead tonight, even before you called me up in front of this inquisition of yours. Don't be impertinent, little. The impertinence lies, sir, with those who seek to influence a man to deny his beliefs. On the contrary, little, we're appealing to your beliefs. In your country, in your king, your loyalty to them. Yeah, yeah. In my day, it was king first, God after. Yes, and the war to end wars bitterly proved your point. God made countries. God makes kings and the rules by which they govern. And those rules say that the Sabbath is his. And I, for one, intend to keep it that way. Mr. Little, you're a child of your race, as I am. We share a common heritage, a common bond, a common loyalty. 
there are times when we're asked to make sacrifices in the name of that loyalty. And without them, our allegiance is worthless. As I see it, for you, this is such a time. Sir, God knows I love my country. But I can't make that sacrifice. Now, you and I can argue as to whether Eric Little was free to run on Sunday. I mean, the reality is Sabbath in the Old Testament was a Saturday. They were talking about the wrong day, running on Sunday. But regardless, you've got to admire his conviction, his dedication to a set of ideals, and nobody was going to move him off of that. That's the persister. So that gives you kind of an overview of the persister. Let's move from persister to dreamer. Now, dreamers tend to be easygoing folks, uh, but very few people are aware of the depth with which a dreamer will contemplate the many facets of life. They think that they're just daydreaming, but they're usually in deep thought. The strengths of a dreamer are that they are imaginative, they are reflective, and they're calm. Dreamers like to look before they leap. They like to consider something deeply before they speak. They wait for clear direction in order to join activities. Uh, they tend to enjoy the routine because it frees them up to think about other things. They don't have to gauge their mind on the routine. They enjoy thinking and reflecting. I had a friend in, in um, Woodland Park, Colorado, who was a dreamer. He worked as a uh, state um, national park representative at uh, Pikes Peak National Park. And every day he would go to the park and he would spend his day taking up tickets you know, for people visiting the park. That was his job. But every morning he'd come to McDonald's and he'd be reading books on astrophysics. He'd be reading books on history, philosophy. He could engage on any subject. And one day I asked him, I said, you're a ranger at the park. I mean, isn't there something else you want to do? I mean, I would think that would be boring to you. He said, no, it's perfect. I said, why? He said, I just sit in that booth all day. I take people's money. I give them a ticket. It gives me time to think about everything else. Now, that's a dreamer. Uh Dreamers are reliable. They even have a servant's heart, but you won't catch them volunteering for stuff or leading because they don't like uh, to be in the limelight. It's not, not because they have an unwillingness to volunteer. That is their heart. You have to challenge them directly. But they don't particularly like being in the limelight. They like reading and they like solitude. Uh, dreamers enjoy engaging in concepts, analogies, metaphors unlike the achiever that engages with data and details. Uh, they're capable of comprehending abstract concepts. They can identify unique solutions to situations. They can look through superficial issues and tend to see what the real issues that are going on below the surface. Many dreamers tend to be artistic, and they love conveying their ideas in unique ways, like through poetry or music or uh, maybe in paintings, their viewpoint through which they see the world is a reflecting first lens. 
reflecting first. And the currency, in other words, the way they engage the world is their imagination. In fact, if they were here today, they'd tell you what they like. They'd say, I enjoy imagining the possibilities. I, look, I love looking for a different way to do things and spending time just thinking about ideas. They could care less whether they materialize into something concrete. They love thinking. In terms of what motivates them, dreamers want and need private time and personal space. In other words, they seek solitude and quiet. Don't put a dreamer out of the front desk greeting everybody. It will drive them nuts. They prefer a private workspace. By the way, dreamers tend not to be self-motivated. They're not motivated from within intrinsically, internally. They tend to be externally motivated. Now, what I mean by that, well, you've got achievers and you've got persisters and harmonizers. They're all externally motivated. They have an, I mean, and they're all internally motivated. They have an internal drive that pushes them to get things accomplished. But a dreamer's not like that. They like to be told what to do. They want to know specifically what's expected of them. If you have a dreamer that works for you, you've got to set boundaries and priorities and, and parameters in order for them to be productive. They need clear direction to get things done. Now, neither motivation is wrong or right. The persisters aren't right and the dreamers are wrong. I mean, they're just different. It's the way God has wired us. Dreamers tend to be externally motivated. Now, if you've ever been around a dreamer, you'll, you'll tend to think they don't engage a whole lot. Maybe they don't, they're not aware of what's going on in the room. In fact, I got to spend a weekend with a dreamer. Uh, his name was Bob Maris. He's the guy who developed this Servants by Design material. Uh, I got to go through his training. And he'd be up lecturing and we'd be following, taking notes, and then he'd just look away. And he, it'd be for 10, 15 seconds. I mean, it felt like an eternity. Then he'd look back at us and he said, you know what? I just figured out why I bought that 1980 red Cadillac rather than buying a new one. Huh. Then he'd get back to his lecture. He just takes little excursions and goes off thinking about something. Now, that's a dreamer. Did you know Einstein was a dreamer? Did you know when Einstein did his most productive work, it wasn't later in his career, it was at the beginning of his career. Before he was known, he worked in a patent office. It was in the patent office doing mundane tasks, stamping stuff, approving stuff, that he developed his theory of relativity. He was doing something mundane so he could be thinking about something profound. That was Einstein. Once he became known and popular, he was around people. He didn't get to do as much deep thinking. Uh, people were clamoring for his time. Now, the percentage of the U.S. population that are dreamers are 10%. 60% are female. 40% are male. And a great biblical example of a dreamer is Jesus' mom, Mary. See if you can catch her dreamer personality uh, as the Gospel of Luke engages with her in the first chapter. You can follow along on the screen as I read. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. 
Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she she was troubled at his sayings and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Now notice what it says. She considered the manner of greeting that this was. In other words, she was reflecting, pondering the situation, thinking about it. Now, she, she doesn't react like an achiever analyzing the situation. Now, wait a minute. How, how could I be pregnant since I'm a virgin? That's the way an achiever would respond. Uh, doesn't take action like a catalyzer. Hey, wait a minute. How did you get in here? The door was locked. I want you to leave right now. That's the way a catalyzer would respond. Uh, doesn't argue like a persister. Are you telling me I'm immoral? I'm pregnant? No, not like a persister. And doesn't um, react emotionally like a harmonizer. I mean, what are you telling me this happened to me? Or maybe the other extreme, oh, this is great, this is awesome, I can't believe I've been chosen. That's the way a harmonizer would probably have engaged emotionally. But she engages as a dreamer. In fact, I want you to see if you can recognize her dreamer personality in the next chapter when the shepherds approach the stable. Verse 16 of chapter 2, it says, And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the sayings which, which was told them concerning the child. In other words, what the angels had told them. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now the shepherds enter with new information about what's going on. And how does Mary respond? She's calm. It actually says she ponders. She's reflecting and ponders it all in her heart. Now, can you see the dreamer in her? Mary was a dreamer. In fact, I want you to see a video of a dreamer. In fact, this is a real dreamer. This is not an actor. Bob Maris, the guy who developed this material, I told you he was a dreamer. He gave me his personal video. It's a video of himself and his wife watching their daughter uh, ride her bike down the street, which will give you kind of a good um, insight into a dreamer. Now, I want you to watch how easily Bob Maris is distracted. Right down to the little truck and back, sugar. What? Right down to the to the gutter truck and back. Great. works. Yeah. It has a big roll of metal in the back, and it actually makes the gutter right there on the job. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Hi, Anna. What? Uh. Hi, See how easily distracted he was? He's watching his daughter ride her bike, and there's a gutter truck. And the daughter rides the bike back, and he's thinking about the gutter truck. You ever seen the gutter truck? You know how that thing works? I mean, 
he, he's totally distracted, but his wife, thank goodness, is paying attention. Dreamers are the kind of people who leave their children at the mall, they forget them, and they don't realize they've left them until they get home and their spouse asks, you know, where is Cody? And they go, oh, my gosh, he's at the mall. Now, that's a dreamer. Next personality style, catalyzer. You could say they're the opposite extreme of a dreamer. Uh, they tend to be a can uh, accommodating, attractive, and convincing with a unique mix of being able to gain common ground with the people they're around and to be able to engage with them and persuade them a certain direction. They bring out the best in others, usually relying upon natural skills of intuition and understanding personality. They're pretty intuitive about people. Uh, their strengths of a catalyzer are they're adaptable, persuasive, and charming. Adaptable, persuasive, and charming. They are compelled to make things happen. They tend to be action-oriented. When they believe something and are persuaded that this is true, they'll tend to persuade others to accept that viewpoint. They like influencing others. Uh, they're not shy. They're risk-takers. If you think a project holds, if they think a project holds promise, then they'll latch on to it many times being energized by what seems like insurmountable obstacles in that project. But they're convinced it has promise. They tend to see people as resources, and they're skilled at networking with people. They have a zest for adventure. They're self-confident. And their self-confidence is that which can bring people on board to engage, uh, instead of individuals as a whole, they have this uncanny ability to spot opportunities. They love selling ideas, and they are motivated to carry out the ideas that they love selling. Their viewpoint to which they perceive the world is an acting first lens. They're very action-oriented. In fact, their currency, that the way they engage to bring about this action, is their charm. They can be very charming. Uh, the words you'll hear them talk about, it'll be like, um, let's go for it, just do it. Now, this is the bottom line, let's get, get it done. That, that's that action orientation. That's why the lightning bolt is the symbol that we use for them. Uh, their words say, we can do it now, strike while the iron is hot. The phrase, just do it, I mean, that's right up their alley. They're motivated uh, by... Uh, the need for excitement and opportunities to make things happen. Catalyzers love the thrill of the hunt. Carpe diem would be their motto, seize the day. They like excitement and they like being known for their unique abilities to challenge others and get things done. They can make quick decisions. They make them pretty accurately just because they have a, a great intuition about them. They love making a big splash, bringing home the big deal. They, they love accomplishing the slam dunk. They love to have impact. In the corporate world, they tend to gravitate towards something related to sales. They're pretty good salesmen because they're persuasive, but they also come across as charming. People like them. 
and they love to close the deal and they're pretty good at it. The problem in the business world, what happens is that you have a catalyst who's a salesman, a catalyzer who's a salesman, and uh, he's excellent selling product, better than anybody. So what does the company do? Makes him sales manager, puts him in charge of eight to ten other people, hoping that he would train them how to sell. But for the catalyzer, it just drains the life out of him. Managing people is not what he was meant for. I mean, he is meant for the hunt, uh, closing the deal, making the sale. And he comes alive when he's out there doing things like that. Now, of the U.S. population, only 5% are catalyzers. 40% of those are female. 60% are male. Great catalyzer in the Bible is an Old Testament gal named Rahab. In fact, if you remember the story of Rahab, she saw an unusual opportunity present itself to her, and she saw a way to save herself and her entire family from total annihilation and destruction. Now, if you remember in the book of Joshua, uh, Joshua sends two spies into Jericho in order to figure out what's going on there. They end up staying in Rahab's house. When the king of Jericho gets wind that there's a couple spies here, he sends two soldiers to Rahab's house. So let's pick up the action there and listen to what goes on in chapter 2. It says, And then the women took the two men and hid them. These are the spies from Israel. The two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, to. She said this. Yes, the men came to me. Now she's talking to the soldiers. Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the floor. Now before they lay down, in other words, before they were hidden under the flax, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and the terror of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. I mean, can you see what she's doing? She's setting up the sale. She's getting ready to ask for something. So the next verse, verse 12, she says, Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since you have shown, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. It means a pledge. I want you to give me a pledge and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours, if none of you tells this business of ours. And it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. But the story doesn't end there. There's more risk. In fact, Rahab is even more directive. I mean, she's going to tell them exactly what to do, beginning in verse 15. She says, and then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain. In other words, get to that hill country. You'll be safe there, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterwards, you may go your way. Do you see how she's still directing them, telling them what to do? She's got a solution. Now, that's a catalyst. I mean, do you see... Uh, the catalyzer personality coming out in Rahab. I think a great example of a catalyst is in the movie Captain Ron. Any of you guys remember that? It's quite old. Remember Kirk Russell plays this 
old seafaring captain. So let's just pick up the action right here and see if you can see the energy.
<laughs> Did you notice how Captain Ron immediately took charge of the relationships? Came on board, made a mistake, didn't miss a beat. Just keeps moving forward, connecting with each person, engaging them, I mean, trying to encourage them. Did you notice how much chaos and drama follows him? He gets things mixed up. His car begins to set the brake. It rolls off the pier into the water. Now, that's a catalyzer. Now, finally, there is the energizers. Now, an energizer has a knack for fun. He has little tolerance for boredom. Uh, he's quick to let people know what he likes and dislikes. Their strengths are that they're spontaneous, they're creative, and they're playful. They tend to bring energy to a situation, and uh, they tend to like um, expressing themselves musically, artistically. They'll delve into different expressions of themselves. They can reinvent themselves over and over again. Uh, they bring a unique perspective to problem solving, which allows them to, to seek creative solutions. They are made for brainstorming. They also have the uncanny ability to see humor in almost anything. They love having fun, and uh, they avoid dull situations, dull tasks. Uh, they enjoy getting a group having fun. In fact, the bigger the group, the better. They get to engage that group. Uh, they also like living for the now. They're not motivated so much by accomplishments as they are by what can we do now, and maybe accomplishments will happen. Their viewpoint is that they perceive the world through a reacting first lens, reacting first. And their currency is uh, fun and playfulness. Now, they usually respond to people into situations with strong likes and dislikes. You never have to guess, you know, whether they're for something or against something. Uh, they usually communicate it. There's usually no middle ground. Uh, their language can be extreme instead of I, I'm not too fond of that. It's I dislike that or I hate that. They do have extreme language, and they do tend to react. Their motivation is that they need playful contact and humor. That's how they like to engage the world. Their currency is fun and playfulness. I don't know if I told you that. They love being with people. Every time they're around, there's a lot of movement and activity, stimulation. Uh, they avoid boredom like the plague. And they want contact and uh, attention. And if they can't get it in a positive way, they'll get it any way they can. It can be even a negative way. Now, I have an energizer son. He's, he's full of life. He enjoys being spontaneous. He, he works for Life Church in Oklahoma City where he's a, a movie producer there. He's built for brainstorming and creative thinking. Now, he has an achiever dad, and as an achiever, I'm driven to get the task done. In fact, when he used to live at home with us when he was in high school, he'd get home for a weekend, and I'm thinking as an achiever, okay, you've got to get your studies done, then you can engage with people. So he'd come in the door. I'd ask him, how'd your day go? And I'd get a one- or two-word answer. Oh, it was okay. We, we had a lot of fun, you know, something like that. It never had anything to do with school. always had to do with relationships with other people. I'd say, how'd you do on that paper? Oh, that, it was all right. Never engaged much on schoolwork. Uh, and then I would usually get into my achiever mode, and I'd say, you know, 
want you going up to your room and get your homework done so you can engage with your friends later on. That's a cheever way of thinking. But for a person like my son, an energizer, he couldn't think of a more boring way to engage. I mean, he'd get frustrated when I say that. I mean, he'd spent his entire week in a classroom sitting still, but he's an energizer. He's ready to have fun. But I'm telling him he has to go get his homework done. But he's quick to tell me, that's stupid. I don't want to do that. And he'll go in and tell me that, I'll say, well, you need to get it done. He'll say, I hate school. I hate homework. I mean, he's talking extreme language. And then I began to realize that for Daniel to plug in and get things done, the dislikes doing, he's got to have fun first. So I began changing my tactics with him when I began to understand this about him. He'd come in on a Friday. I would ask him high school. I'd get a one-word answer, have some fun. He'd engage a little bit. Instead of saying, why don't you go get your homework done, I'd wait for him say, walk by the kitchen. I'd take the, the sprayer on the sink, and I'd spray him with water as he walked by. He'd turn around, and he'd go, I can't believe you soaked me. I said, you think that's fine. Let me tell you what we did in the fraternity. I said, we used to have this, we had this antebellum home. I mean, it's three stories. We'd get up on the roof with a two-gallon bucket of water. And when the pledges would come walking or running up the walk, we'd try to, to time throwing the water off the roof to soak them uh, as they came running by. I said, Daniel, you know, one time it was about 20 degrees outside. I filled up the bucket of water with the hottest water I could get out of the shower head. And when the pledge came flying up the walk, I mean, when he was about halfway up it, I let it fly, and when it hit him, he disappeared in a cloud of, of fog. It was unbelievable. Really, Dad? I said, yeah. You ever do anything like that? So we got engaging about fun things. We spent 30 minutes just talking and being relational and joking back and forth. And what was amazing, then he would say, you know, I think I'm going to go up and try to get my homework done so I can spend time with some of my friends. You see, I realized he had to have fun before he could get things accomplished. He's different than me. I could have judged his, I don't, I hate school, I'm not going to do that, as rebellion, but it wasn't rebellion. It was his personality coming out. He was trying to tell me he likes to have fun. You see, energizers aren't refueled by taking on responsibility. A achiever is by checking stuff off their list. I get three things checked off my list. I'm motivated to get three more. But that's different for the energizer. Now, if you're an achiever, you have a hard time making that paradigm shift because you see life from a different perspective. Now, the percentage of the U.S. population that are energizers are 20%, 40% are female, or 60% are female, 40% are male. Great biblical example of an energizer, you could probably come up with this one, is one of Jesus' disciples. I mean, you got Peter. You got Peter reacting to situations with extreme language. I mean, going to, from one side to the other. I mean, he tells Jesus, I'll never deny you. And an hour or two later, he denies him three times. Earlier than that, the, the soldiers come to arrest uh, Peter in the garden, or, or Jesus in the garden. What does Peter do? He, he pulls out his knife, and he slices off the slave's ear. Jesus has to pick it up, put it back on, no problem there. But he tends to react, doesn't he? And then later in the upper room, well, let's pick up the action 
in the upper room in chapter 13, verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took on a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water in a basin, basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, you're not washing my feet. See the extreme there? You're not going to wash my feet. You shall never wash my feet. So you see you see that behavior, that energizer behavior? He, he's reacting. And so notice how Jesus responds. And Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So how does Simon Peter respond? He says, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Give me an entire bath. He goes from one extreme to the other. Now, that that is energizer kind of behavior. Probably the best movie uh, depiction of an energizer comes from the movie uh, Mrs. Doubtfire with Robin Williams. Watch this scene. boys and girls. Today, we'll be talking about dinosaurs. It's a dinosaurus line! Da, 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 da. And please welcome the king! It's a dinner show. Hey, hey, where are you from? Thank you. I'm going to make you lunch. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, put your claws together. Please welcome... Probably excited about the opportunity uh, to use his persuasive skills with 
other people. I mean, this is an all-or-nothing game. Everything's on the line. So he's motivated to do it. So he probably immediately takes some kind of action, probably goes over to uh, one of the other players and tries to make a deal. Won't you give me all your chips? And then uh, when we win, because we'll have twice as many as anyone else, when we win, uh, we'll get the $500, and I'll split it with you 60-40. He tries to make a deal. Now, the Energizer is excited because of all the fun, but it's not enough fun. So to make things even more exciting, he starts pushing people around. He starts bumping into them. He's pretending to swipe their chips. He probably gets two or three of them over to the side, and he makes a, a side game of um, let, let's put chips on our nose and see how long we can keep them there. And the person that keeps it there the longest gets the chips of the people who have lost theirs, and so he's gaining chips that way. Now, the persister is probably concerned that gambling goes against their moral standards, so they are wanting to set down some guidelines and rules, but the energizer is saying, guidelines, this is a free-for-all. We're just going to have fun, and he's running through the group, creating all sorts of havoc. The dreamer, though, has found a chair over in the corner. He's sitting down, and he could care less about winning or losing. I mean, the joy is observing what's going on and making mental notes about the different personality types. The harmonizer is excited about everyone participating in something together. Not too keen on the competition, could care less about winning or losing, but they're probably in tune with who's been left out and who got their feelings hurt. They enjoy being a part of the group. Now, the achievers, that would be most of you in the room, is standing there trying to come up with a formula that would give them the solution to win this thing and come away with 500 bucks. Now, that's the difference between the, the six personalities. My other son is an achiever. At the, at the picnic they had here uh, for the uh, children's ministry, they had a, a jar of jelly beans there, and you had to guess the number of jelly beans. And his son, my grandson, wanted to make a guess. Josh sat there and thought for a minute, came up with a formula to calculate the number of jelly beans in the jar and got it within 50 and won the prize for his son, which just embarrassed me because the pastor's son ends up winning it by using a formula, but that's an achiever. So you can imagine the lightning in our home between an energizer and an achiever, two boys together. It was a lot of fun. So that kind of gives you a, a, a feel for the different personalities. Hopefully you're catching on. Now, one motivation, one perspective is not good or bad. They're all uh, neutral. It's the way God has gifted us. Now, next week when we come back, I want to give you a big picture overview of, of um, these personalities. Uh, and then take that handout, that second handout you picked up at the table, I'm going to start stepping us through that. I gave this to you ahead of time so you can look it over. And uh, you, you achievers may probably get it all uh, filled out, and that's fine. Uh, to kind of tell you where we're going, we'll use the information you've learned from the Servants by Design to begin filling this out. And this will move all the way down to developing a personal mission statement, then eventually a slogan to describe you and a word that describes you. And part of your graduation is to turn in the mission statement, the slogan, and the word. And at graduation, we're going to have a great time because I'll introduce you by your slogan. And people that'll know, that know you will go, oh, yeah, that's them. That's them. That nailed them. So we'll have a lot of fun with that. 
So I appreciate you guys braving the weather and uh, coming out, and we'll see you next week. Did anybody happen to count for me?